0: Whenever I come to the Upper West Side, I feel a little bit like I'm trespassing. My dress and wedges, which seemed passable, even chic in my neighborhood bar a week ago, suddenly seemed tattered, like the price tags betraying their cheapness are still dangling from them, advertising that I'm just visiting from another class. It's hard to imagine that people spend their everyday lives in these architecturally renowned buildings with uniform doormen and marble entryways. These poodles and French bulldogs sniffing at my ankles look out their windows onto Central Park, not another building's A.C. unit. There was a brief period of time when I was making what I considered real money, and I'll never forget the relief I felt at not having to agonize over the 80-cent difference between the generic brand of bread and the nicer, healthier brand of bread with a name I'd actually heard of. What was the equivalent for the people who lived in these buildings? When had they realized they'd made it? and we're no longer toiling in the trenches where people lived in only one-bedroom apartments on 1st Avenue. Thankfully, I'm on my way to the Museum of Natural History, so at least I get to feel superior to the river of tourists I'm in as we flow from the subway to the museum's door. I'm going to see Ira Baum, the scientist who works in the museum's research department and has published a few articles. He seems to specialize in bugs and I liked trying to imagine the man who chose to make that his life's work. What if he had taken just a slight turn somewhere down the line and wound up as an exterminator? Once inside the museum, I head over to a guard. I'm afraid the people at the desk would know too much. Hi, I'm here for an interview with Ira Baum. A lot of people work here, ma'am. I'm not going to know them all or what they're up to. Well, maybe you could just point me in the right direction, then? The research department. Try going down that hall, down the stairs, to your right. There should be someone there who can help. I smile, tucking my head down between my shoulders so I look as meek and harmless as possible. I don't mind, sometimes, playing the game. I follow the directions immediately feeling more at ease when I start making my way down the stairs and the loud rush of visitors begins fading away. I expect to see another desk or guard at the foot of the stairs, but there's no one, just a door with a staff-only sign that's locked. I look around, peer through the window to see a long hallway with what looks to be a whole maze of halls sprouting from either side. After a few moments, I see someone turn into the main hall and head toward the door, I step to the side and start furiously rummaging in my bag, mustering up as frantic of an expression as I can manage. When the woman opens the door, she glances over to me. Oh, thank God. I can't believe I lost my card already. Just two days into my internship. I brush past her and flip through the door, only exhaling when I hear the door shut behind me without so much as a, Hey, wait a minute. I make my way down the hall, reading the signs, trying to figure out how to get to Ira. I take a few turns based on nothing more than wild guesses, starting to think that perhaps I should have left a trail of breadcrumbs. I'm already a little on edge when I see that familiar scurry out of the corner of my eye and my skin automatically prickles. A roach has just passed me way too close to my feet, and it's one of the big subway ones too, not the measly apartment ones. I quicken my pace to attempt to catch up and stomp on it, doing my civic duty to protect these basement workers from stumbling across it later. No, don't! I whirl around. Two janitors are rushing towards me, holding their hands out.
1: Did it have a number on
0: it? What? They push past me and one of them dives for the roach, trapping it under a clear plastic cup.
1: It does! It's one of his. What's it say? What's it say? I'm trying to see through the cup. Maybe if I just lift it up a little No! Don't do that, you idiot! It'll run out. 47! It's number 47.
0: The other janitor pulls a little spiral notebook out of his back pocket and writes the number down. He finally looks over at me as he clicks his pen closed.
1: Sorry, I didn't mean to yell at you earlier. It's just that when you squish them, you usually can't see the numbers that good. Plus, Ira gets mad. Ira? As in Ira Baum? Yeah, the bug guy. He's got tanks of these in his office for whatever he's working on in there. Problem is, they're sneaky little bastards and always escaping. He paints his numbers on them with whiteout. Keep track of them, you know. So whenever we see one of the escape artists, we started writing down the numbers of the ones we find. Play the lottery with them. Have you won yet? Nah, but you gotta play to win, you know. Figure it's just as good a strategy as any. We didn't think we'd get enough numbers for the draw today, but this was the last one we needed. So maybe today's our lucky day, right? Mm-hmm. Mm. Yes. Can't be too lucky if we have to see the bug guy to bring this back, though.
0: Actually, that's who I'm on my way to see. I can bring it to him. For real? Yeah, sure. You just need to tell me how to get to his office. I think I'm lost.
1: Alright. You turn left down the next hall, then right, then he's three doors
0: down. You sure you're cool with this? I live in New York. I've seen a roach before. Okay, then. The guy kneeling by the roach jostles the cup before quickly turning it right side up and placing his hand over the top. He stands and steps towards me. He extends his arms, and, with a moment of hesitation, I reach out for it, replacing his hand with mine.
1: Thanks for doing this, man. Remember, left, right, three doors down.
0: Yep. Good luck. I try not to look down at the cup as I head towards Ira's office. I'm walking a lot faster now, due to carrying a large roach and all, but I don't think about how the bumpy ride might agitate it more than a casual stroll would. I hear it knocking around the bottom of the cup, and then, to my horror, It gets a jolt of momentum and starts climbing up the side of the cup, across my hand, down the other side of the cup, and back again, making frantic loops of its little prison. Each time I feel it scuttle across my palm, I nearly drop the cup and make a run for it. But this disgusting little bug's my way in. Before this terrible stroke of luck, I hadn't really had a plan once I actually found Ira. I just try to focus on anything other than the roach and by the time I reach Ira's office, tears are welling up in my eyes and I'm on the brink of hyperventilating. I grip the top of the cup and knock. The door opens and I struggle to erase any sign of panic from my face. Ira Bound glares at me, sturdy and stooped, wearing glasses, a crew neck sweater, and khakis. I found number 47. I lift the cup up and he squints at it. Then his whole face seems to brighten. Oh,
2: excellent. I even noticed you'd gone missing yet.
0: Come in. I had been hoping he'd take the cup from me, but instead I follow him into the office where there is, indeed, a collection of about a dozen tanks, all with a pile of roaches climbing over each other inside.
2: She belongs in this tank here. You can just drop the whole cup inside.
0: He lifts the lid and I gratefully drop the cup, shaking my hand frantically as if to toss off the remaining invisible bugs. It's
2: not so often you see a woman comfortable with carrying an insect around like that.
0: I don't really mind bugs that much. Some are better than others, I guess.
2: Oh, really? Which ones are your favorite?
0: Oh, I don't know. I kind of like praying mantises, black widows. I'm really into that whole idea of females murdering their mates once they're done with them.
2: You sound just like my mother.
0: He sees the intrigue written over my face, sighs, and turns away from me to shuffle some papers on his desk as he elaborates.
2: She was a feminist. Got all swept up on the revolution, denounced my dad and all her kids, took back her maiden name, and left us all to go burn brass with Gloria Steinem.
0: Oh, awesome. Oh, um, I mean, I'm sorry to hear that.
2: Well, thank you for returning number 47. I was just about to...
0: What are you doing with them, anyway?
2: I'm studying them.
0: Yeah, but, I mean, what are you researching?
2: I really don't have time to discuss that at the moment, okay? I have a lot of work to get back to. I suggest you read my article that will be featured in the forthcoming annual review of Entomology. That is, if I can complete my research in time without too many interruptions. Oh. Okay. Got it. Well,
0: uh, you're welcome. Goodbye. Goodbye. Ira doesn't look up as I leave. I shut the door behind me and leaned against it in defeat. Well, that was completely useless. I really need to start thinking these things through more. I traced my route back. After a few turns, I hear an outburst up ahead. I follow the celebratory exclaiming to the two janitors, who are looking down at their phones in excited disbelief and giving each other a high fives. They notice me standing there.
1: Yo, you'll never believe it. We just won. Oh, my God. Yeah like two thousand dollars
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's so cool congratulations i turn to continue on my way but one of them stops me
2: wait, wait 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 hold on
0: he jogs over to me pulling out his wallet on the way he looks into it furrows his brow and pulls out two crinkled dollar bills to hand to me
2: it's the least we could do
0: oh man thanks but you don't need to do that take it two dollars
1: Means
0: nothing to us now. No, sorry. <laughs> <sherry.
1: laughs> ah, yeah, all right. Doing my all kinds of
0: stuff that I man. relent to take the two dollars from him, two smiling. Big ones. Well, bro. thank that's you. Like he dances million. his way back to his friend, that's and I like walk away. Of, like, their like, cheers fading as I head towards the door. True. I
1: can finally pay off my student loans. And man, I can finally boss. pay
2: back my grandma. <laughs>
0: I head across the street to Central Park, grabbing a soft pretzel from a cart along the way. I let myself get a little lost, arbitrarily choosing my turns until I find myself on a bench along a path shaded by trees. I tear small pieces off my pretzel and shoo them slowly as I watch the dog walkers, love-sick couples, and power-walking elderly parade past me, wondering what could possibly connect Rachel and Ira. Perhaps he was a client of hers back in the day. I'm not sure why a scientist would need her services, though. Maybe they had a common enemy. Maybe it was a hit list. Maybe they were hiding gambling problems and it's some bookies list going around collecting debts and breaking ribs. Maybe I shouldn't be so dark. Maybe they're guests for a wedding. Maybe they're honorees for some award. Maybe they're the shortlist for someone scouting candidates for city council. I pull the notebook out of my bag and look at the list again, even though I've practically memorized it. Giant grains of salt fall into the fold as I take a bite of my pretzel. I've come up with a hundred explanations for the list, it seems, but frustratingly, the little tidbits of information, the dates, countries, towns, neighborhoods, that I had first considered clues end up throwing me off more and more as I dig into them. I've discovered that a good third of the names are dead, but I can't see a pattern between their facts that lets me group them together in any meaningful way. Sometimes a date will end up being the year they were born, but that doesn't apply to all the people who are tagged with a year. A lot of the names seem Eastern European, and many of the dead have countries like Russia or Ukraine next to their names, which gets my mind spinning about spies. But then there are places like Allentown and Hartford listed too, and I can't imagine there being an underground ring of spies operating there. I've been watching a lot of Law & Order. I binge-watched all of those Swedish TV shows. I borrowed Gillian Flynn and Elmore Leonard and Agatha Christie from the library. Digging around, clutching my notebook, and searching for a mystery makes me feel like a little girl obsessed with Harriet the Spy again. I borrow Harriet the Spy from the library, too. Reading it as an adult makes my heart ache for my younger self now that I realize why I identified with her so much. But, just like when I was a girl with my spy kit, at times I worry I'm spending all this time hoping to stumble across something horrible and exciting, a murder mystery or a vast conspiracy to shake up the monotony of my life and instead wind up with nothing. A perpetual unsolved mystery or the equivalent of grocery list. I feel my phone vibrating in my bag. It's a text from Derek. Hey, stranger, it says. The text of a man who hasn't been late in a while scrolling through his contacts. I go months without hearing from him and yet he somehow always knows when to pop up again right when I could really use him. Derek is dull. We barely have anything in common and our conversations bore me to tears. But he's comfortable. Safe. He gives me compliments with emojis at the end of them, which is a habit I only tolerate in him. He's good enough in bed in a way I can rely on. He goes down on me first and doesn't expect head until I come. I suck him off until he's hard, because he doesn't get hard from giving me head and then he throws me down for five minutes of missionary, followed by five minutes of doggy style. He comes on my back and gets me a towel, because he's polite, before dramatically falling down onto the bed next to me, exhausted with pleasure. I sleep over. He kisses me on the forehead on the way out the door the next morning, because he's sweet. Then I don't hear from him again until months later, usually after a fling with a girl he actually wants to be with doesn't work out, and I can't seem to be moved to be upset by it. It's the perfect relationship. Hey there, I respond. The text of a girl who realizes, damn, I guess it's been a while for me too. Derek wants to meet for happy hour at a bar near his new place in Greenpoint and I feel a little duped because he used to live in Clinton Hill and I think he should have told me at the beginning of our conversation that, should we continue, I'd be taking the G in the near future. I kill time in the park for a few hours with my notebook and Agatha Christie and then at a coffee shop with my notebook and Agatha Christie and a cold brew. I find a Sephora and touch up my makeup. I change my visiting-the-museum pink lipstick to an I'm-going-to-get-fucked-later red. I thicken my eyeliner because they like it when it's smudged afterward. I try not to think too hard about the implications of playing into the fact that guys get turned on at even the appearance of you crying during sex. I try a new blush that actually looks really nice with my skin tone and has cute packaging. I swing through the hair section and tame my flyaways with an organic hairspray. I get worried that the salespeople are on to me. So I leave. When I arrive at the bar, Derek is already sitting at a small table for two with a half-finished pint of beer in front of him as he stares at his phone. He doesn't look up until my shadow is cast over him, then greets me with a big smile. He always seems relieved that I haven't put on weight since we last saw each other. I have. Six pounds. But most of it went to my ass, so I don't think he'll mind. He stands and gives me a quick hug and passing a kiss on the cheek. I'm going to get a beer.
1: Okay. I'll be here.
0: Derek makes a lot more money than me, but he doesn't offer to add my drink to his tab. I silently ask the ghost of my second-wave feminist mother to forgive me for being annoyed at this. It's not a sexist thing. It's a checkbook thing, I tell myself. When I get back to the table, Derek takes several seconds finishing up the message he's sending before putting his phone down to the side and looking me in the eye.
1: So, how are you?
0: Good. You?
1: I'm okay. Stand at work, but that's to be expected, I guess.
0: Yeah, it's that time of year. I don't remember what he does for a living, but it seems like the right thing to say. Throughout the first drink, we discuss the latest twist in the show we both watch. He reviews the new movie by his favorite director, who I pretend I'm also really into just to avoid being constantly educated as to why he's the most important living director. I still get the crash course sometimes, though, even as I'm holding my own in our conversations about him. I'm able to hold my own, of course, because the director is just like every other male indie filmmaker who works out their issues with their father on the big screen. At least their particularly sensitive disgust with women plays much more subtly and artfully than those blockbusters Derek and elf turn their noses up at. As I watch him go get his second beer, I fondly remember giving him a handjob in the Angelica. We felt like we were kids again that day. Halfway through the second drink, Derek starts to get this faraway look in his eye. We go a minute, maybe even two, without speaking. He shakes his head.
1: I'm sorry. I'm mean, in this weird headspace. I've been going through some shit lately, to be honest.
0: Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Do you want to talk about it?
1: Nah, I don't want to put that on you.
0: He does, but I'll let him think I have to pull it out of him. I play at the girlfriend. I reach my hand across the table and place it softly on his. I don't mind, really. What's wrong?
1: Well, actually, my dad just came out.
0: Oh my god. That must be tough.
1: Yeah, it was kind of a shock to all of us, but looking back, a lot of things make sense now, you know? He's been really distant the past year or two. I guess he was just working up the courage.
0: I'm so sorry, I forget. Are your parents divorced already, or are they about to be?
1: They've been married 30 years, and now what? My mom wakes up one morning and by the time she goes to sleep that night, she's learned that's all been a lie.
0: When did this all happen? Are you going to go visit them in Jersey to help them through this at all?
1: They live in Connecticut, remember? Yeah, I went home for a weekend right after it happened about a month ago. But I think I'm gonna go again to just be with my mom now that my dad's all moved out and she's all alone. I I don't know. Maybe now that my dad is being a bit more honest with himself, he'll stop being such an asshole.
0: Yeah, I can only imagine the relief he's feeling right now, you know? I'm sure after this little period of adjustment, things will settle back down to normal. Maybe even better than before.
1: You're probably right. It's just hard to believe that now, with everything being so chaotic. My brother's taking it a lot worse than I am. I'm afraid he's going to start drinking again if he can't find a better way to cope.
0: I mean, I know that divorce and the secrets are rough, but he's just gay.
1: Maybe it's hard to understand from the outside. You just really cherish your family while you can, you know? You never know when everything's gonna change in an instant.
0: Derek knows my parents are dead. We've discussed this at length at least twice.
1: Sorry, this is probably not the fun drink you were expecting. I'm really glad you're here, though. I knew I could just be myself around you.
0: Well, I'm glad I'm here, too. I thought that was a lie until after it left my mouth, but it did feel good to be needed. Maybe I was the third or seventh girl he'd pulled the pity card out on, but in that moment, I let myself believe I really was the only person he could turn to about all this. We get another round. Derek and I walk hand-in-hand through the early evening over to the streets of Row houses still mostly occupied by the Polish. It's a quieter energy than what usually accompanies our drunken rushes back to his place after meeting up. Our conversation had eventually drifted from his dad to sharing that particular kind of urgency about the future you get after being thrown for a loop. He told me about how he'd been finalizing plans to start his own business. He was the first person I told about wanting to try my hand at a graphic novel. We both agreed that now was indeed the time to try one's hand at a graphic novel. As we approach his place, I catch myself thinking outrageous thoughts like, maybe we could check out that new exhibit at the Society of Illustrators next weekend. We walk upstairs. His roommate, a bartender, is at work and we have the place to ourselves. We sit on the couch drinking two mismatched beers he pulled from the fridge and reminiscing about the last time we'd seen each other he drapes his arm across my shoulders and absentmindedly plays with my earrings as we talk before our beers are finished i climb into his lap to kiss him his hands running over my back giving me the illusion of him holding me close my bra is unclasped but not off by the time we stumble into the bedroom and I fumble to slip it out from under my dress as he pulls my underwear down and lifts my legs up onto his shoulders. His tongue feels different on me, softer and gentler. I sink back into his pillows. By the time it's over and I'm crawling into his arms, I'm usually feeling bruised and a little shy, but tonight I feel deeply content, relaxed. I sprawl across his bed languidly, like a cat, melting into his side, shivering slightly as he traces the bell curve from my ribs down to my waist and up to my hips and back again over and over. We mutter pillow talk for a while. He gets us water and slips his underwear back on, but doesn't let me put anything back on, so I wrap myself up in the sheet like I'm in a movie. It's a bit early to go to sleep, but we lounge around as if we're expecting to at any moment. The room is dark, warm, quiet. I'm looking up at the ceiling and matching my breath to his. My mind wanders. I break the silence. You know, when I was younger, I was the only girl in this group of boys. We played baseball together and built forts and would go on scavenger hunts. I loved hanging out with them. Made me feel so cool and tough, you know? Then we got a little older, and three of them would always start joking around, telling me to show them my boobs. At least they pretended they were just joking. I was able to laugh it off at first, but then they started getting mean about it. They'd keep the ball away from me or something. And when I'd get angry about it and yell at them to throw it to me too, they'd say, sure, just take off your shirt first. There was only one boy who wouldn't say that shit. Jacob. He'd be the one to tell them to shut up, grab the ball back, and give it to me. I started hanging out with him the most. I felt like he was the only one who was really my friend. Then in the summer, his family went on vacation for a week, and I didn't have anyone else to hang out with. So I went back to the other boys. They got right in on it again. Come on, come on, just show us your tits. We won't even touch them. I got so frustrated one day I said, fine, I'll show you, but you have to promise not to tell Jacob. I thought he'd be so disappointed in me and I didn't want him thinking of me as that type of girl. They promised and I lifted my shirt up and they laughed and laughed. But they did let me play with them like we used to for the rest of the week. I thought I would stay that way, so when Jacob came back, I said we could all hang out as a group again. We were playing Uno, and we were almost done when one of them said, Hey, Jacob, guess what happened while you were gone? And I started yelling at him to shut up and shouting about how they promised. But of course he told Jacob I'd shown them all my chest. And Jacob got real still and quiet and red. And he got up and he threw his cards down. And I thought he was going to start a fight with them. But he turned to me and he yelled right in my face and said, How could you? The one week I was gone. And he stormed out of the room. I think that was the last time we all hung out. School started again and I made some girlfriends.
1: Why? Why are you telling me this?
0: I don't know. Derek has been asleep for hours, but I'm still lying here, motionless, watching him sleep. I slip out of bed and walk to the window to crack it a little. The musty, post-sex air has long gone stale. The street outside is empty. The building's dark. There's one light on in one window in the building across the way. I can see a girl sitting at a desk, gazing at a computer. She leans back, stretches. Her shirt rises up a little so that some of her stomach is exposed. I look at the curve of her tits stretching the fabric. When she drops her arms back down to her lap, I find myself hoping that she'll slide her hand into her pajama shorts. I want to know what she sounds like when someone's fucking her. I want to know how many fingers I could fit inside her. I want to see what her body looks like as she's writhing on top of my face. I glance back at Derek. I crawl back in his bed, carefully start peeling down his underwear. He's half hard. I put my mouth on him, softly testing him with my tongue. He jolts awake and gently pushes me off him. He murmurs something I don't understand, and he pulls me down next to him, giving me a sleepy, poorly aimed kiss before falling immediately back to sleep. I masturbate to the thought of him fucking the girl across the street. We wake up the next morning. He doesn't offer me breakfast. He gives me a kiss on the forehead as I head out the door because he's sweet. Later that afternoon, I text him, hey. I don't hear from him again. This has been chapter three of This Used to Be the Place, Ira Baum, Museum of Natural History. It was written, read, and produced by me, Celeste Kaufman. Additional voice work was provided by Xavier Holland, Robert Talfet, John Toon, Andrea Jacoby, and James Henry. Music is courtesy of Eva Schlegel. Next up is chapter four, Sarah, artist, Tribeca. Thanks for listening.